0: internet i'm annie i'm kit and i'm mac and this is i will fight you a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone cold facts since 1986 today's fact any valdemar adaptation requires jim henson's creature shop
1: uh this is a me episode guys buckle in (laughs) i
0: don't totally know what that one means (laughs) i'm told we're going to hear about horses for two hours
1: yes pretty much I'm going to be talking about Mercedes Lackey's Heralds of Valdemar series, a fantasy book series that spans uh, 56 total books, including upcoming releases from 1988 until now. They're still coming out. Oofa
0: doofa. Okay, <laughs> so real quick, though, like, the only Mercedes Lackey's books I've read were the trilogy that was, I think, the Black Griffin, the White Griffin, and the Silver Griffin. Are those? The Mage Wars, Yes. Those are part of the Valdemar series. They are vast prequels to the Valdemar series. Okay, so there are a lot of horses, but there are also some griffins in here too.
1: Yes, this is part of like the grand unified theory of why you need Jim Henson's Creature Shop to do this as a TV show or a movie.
0: Okay, dope. But that's like, that is my only context for Mercedes Lackey. So I'm ready. Mac, have you ever read any Mercedes Lackey? I have read no Mercedes
2: Lackey. However, I did just find out by looking at her Wikipedia page that she did write three novels based on the Bard's Tale games, which I have played all of. So that's my (laughs) only knowledge of anything.
1: So it's kind of the same. Mercedes Lackey actually used to be a computer programmer. So she has like some game industry, like early game industry connects, which are uh, interesting. Oh,
2: dope. say so the only thing I remember from the Bard's Tale series is the song Beer, Beer, Beer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's that Carrie Elwa's
0: Bard's Tale. That one's a reboot, isn't it? Or Yeah. Yeah.
2: I know all of them. I played the originals on our old, old, old computer that my dad had bought. Nice. And then I played the remake with Carrie Elwes.
0: Nice. And I've got that song stuck in my head. Beer, beer, beer,
2: totally beer, beer, beer. You're welcome.
1: Anyway. Yeah, so a thing about me is when it comes to long-running fantasy series, I always seem to pick the exact wrong book to start on. When it came to, like, the Seventh Gate series by Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss, I started reading on the last book because that's the one that I found at Value Village that had a dragon on the cover. Wait, but so many of them had dragons on the cover. I remember that series. Yes, but for some reason, the seventh one was the one at Value Village that was $2, so I picked up that one. Oh, no! Yeah, this just keeps happening to me, and to prove this, my first Valdemar book was The White Griffin, the second book of the Mage Wars trilogy, which I found at Value Village, and I was immediately tranced by because it had, number one, a beautiful owl painting of a griffin on it, Uh, number two, the title stamped on it in purple foil, Mm. and number three, a $2 price tag. So I immediately grabbed that, devoured it, and then started reading the rest of the series in kind of, sort of, the correct order.
0: Did you go back and, like, read the black griffin first and then move on or did you just like go out and find some other trilogy to start with
1: uh, i read the white griffin then i read the black griffin then i read the silver griffin and then i found that there was all like a whole at this time other 30 books that i could be reading so that i, I started reading those but how many is it now it's 56 <sighs> <sighs> okay yeah yeah george r, r. martin <laughs> get your shit together <laughs> uh so yeah 56 which i'm going to just run through sort of what the deal is with these in publication order and the reason i'm going a publication order which is as far as i'm concerned the correct reading order which i did a reread of heralds of Valdemar* last year like a complete reread of the series including the stuff that i hadn't read since i stopped reading the series and this is maybe completely f***ed up my recommendations on storygraph forever and always we'll find out that's a dense amount of books Yeah, if you look at my story graph reading stats for that year, you can tell where the rolling lockdowns happened. (laughs) (laughs) Because my graph of how many books I read a month just spikes every time it happens.
0: (laughs) This seems like the kind of thing where like a parent will have like their Spotify year in review list. And if they have a kid, like I know Lucas has told me that he has this problem. Hi, Lucas, where like he carefully curates his playlists and his listen times every year and then his son just f**ks it
1: all up with, like, play more baby shark. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so my story graph recommendations are now the equivalent of play more baby shark. It's all (laughs) book covers of horses from here on out. But the reason that I think the publication order is the correct order to read them in and not in chronological order is for the simple reason that Mercedes Lackey hates to repeat herself. And she does not, like, revisit explanations of things she's already explained in books published earlier, even if those books take place earlier. So, for example... Oh, no. Magic's Pawn is the earliest book chronologically to feature heralds. At no point does it really explain what a herald is, because she already explained it in Arrows of the Queen, which takes place later, but was published earlier.
0: Oh no, like, I can respect (laughs) that, but also, surely at some point, it's okay to have a,
1: as you already know... When you've been writing that many books for that long. There's things Mercedes Lackey does not believe in. She does not believe in naming swords. <laughs> she does not believe in the dismissal of women's work in fantasy fiction. And she does not believe in explaining she's already explained.
0: <laughs> oh, That just sounds like so much information that you have to keep in your head as a reader. That sounds exhausting.
1: Yeah. Uh, so that's why I'm like this.
0: I assume at some point it got easier because people started making wikis for this shit online. Yes. But like before that, ooh. Wikis are a very handy
1: lifesaver for these things.
0: <laughs> ooh, that's harsh. <laughs> Speaking as someone who has to write things down to allow myself to not think about them for five seconds, like
1: ouch. And it's especially good because like Mercedes Lackey and her husband, Larry Dixon, who's also her co-writer on a lot of Valdemar stuff, they are very granular in the way that they've worked out how magic and stuff works in this world. Mm -hmm. However, they're also aware that none of their characters will have this granular understanding of how magic works in this world. So as a result, these characters are trying to, like, sometimes they struggle to hold concepts in their heads and there are different schools of thought that, like, contradict each other on magic and things like that. Meanwhile, Larry Dixon is out here publishing essays like Under the Veil, which is just a very lengthy explanation of magic systems that none of the characters will be privy to ever. Huh. That sounds
0: very satisfying to actually write out.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's basically the appeal of writing for RPGs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like popping up the iceberg above water to be like,
1: look! Witness! (laughs) Witness what I have created. Nobody else will get the chance to appreciate this. You might as well. Exactly. So I don't really have any notes for this aside from just like a list of all the Valdemar books. So I figure I'm just going to go through and sort of explain what the deal is with this series trilogy by trilogy off the dome. All right. As I mentioned before the recording session, you will respect me either more or less by the end of this. I have not figured out which. (laughs) But let's start with the first series, The Heralds of Aldemar, which uh, the first book, Arrows of the Queen, came out in 1988. This is a trilogy of three books, Arrows of the Queen, Arrows Flight, and Arrows Fall. And it is sort of your introduction to... The world of Valdemar, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world, the heralds, things like that. So we start with actually a pretty standard, or what has become standard YA setup, which is a girl, Talia, who is living in an isolated community that is basically Mormons, runs away from home and runs across a beautiful white horse and figures, I should return this beautiful white horse to whoever it belongs to. This horse seems to know where it's going. So she rides the horse all the way to the capital, Where she finds out that, yeah, this horse, which is a creature called a companion, by the way. So it's not a horse? It's not a horse. It looks like a horse. It's a beautiful white horse with blue eyes and silver hooves, and it is a magical creature that is telepathic, has chosen her to be a herald, and is in fact the companion to the queen's own, which is basically the herald assigned to the monarch themselves. But it looks like a horse. But it looks like a horse. It walks like a horse. Looks like a horse, walks like a horse, uh, talks like a horse. Smells like a horse. Talks like horses don't. Quacks like a horse. Yes. <laughs> Clip clops like a horse. <laughs> Clip clops like a horse. It's a horse. But it's not a horse. It's not
0: a horse. It is a horse, but it's not a horse. Also, I I mean, you say beautiful white horse, and I'm just kind of like taking a look at the screenshot you showed us of a whole bunch of Mercedes (laughs) Lacking covers, and I feel like I have a slight subtle inclination as to where this might be going. (laughs) (laughs) Because y'all, this is four by three, this is 12 different books, and they all got a beautiful white horse on them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them. When Storycraft did like my end of year wrap up, and, and I just saw this screen cap of like 56 identical white horses, <laughs> I just lost my mind. But anyway, so Talia goes to Herald School, and she finds out what a Herald is. A Herald is basically a dispenser of the Queen's justice. They fulfill the narrative role of a knight errant when they're out on circuit in the borderlands of the country. They settle disputes. They resolve legal problems. They uh, chase off bandits. They check everyone's tax records. Really just kind of everything. They're Texas Rangers? They're Texas Rangers, functionally. Okay. So that's their job without the country. And they are also, like, functionally at the Queen's disposal for anything she needs to be done that, like, is not suitable for things like the army.
0: So this is information that is given once and never again.
1: This information that is kind of given once and never again. Yeah. Okay. And the interesting thing about this as well is, is that the monarch needs to be a herald. In order to be crowned monarch, the heir needs to be a herald. And the reason for this has to do with the origin story of the country itself, which is told to us in kind of history class environment, sort of mythologized the same way that you hear the foundation of the United States mythologized, because Lackey's an American author, which is that Baron Valdemar, who was good to his people and took care of his people, was living under an oppressive empire which became unbearable to the point where he took all of his people and fled west and started his own country. Which turned out really, really well until he got old and realized the main problem with monarchy, which is, I know I'm a good guy and I'm pretty sure my son's a good guy. How do I ensure that all of my descendants for the rest of the lifetime of this country are actually good monarchs? And in order to resolve this problem, she, according to some records, cast a spell because he was a mage, and according to some records, prayed to, like, every god there was... Either way, what happened was the appearance of the companions. The companions would come along, these telepathic horse creatures, and they would choose people who were functionally pure of heart to serve the nation. The monarch needs to be a herald, therefore we ensure that The monarch continues to be not a shitty tyrant to the point where like there have been instances where the heir apparent, the firstborn child of the king or queen, does not get chosen by a companion and the succession actually passes to like another sibling or a cousin in the royal line who is a herald.
0: Ah, So this is kind of that thing where you really insist that it would make the world a better place if everybody had to work customer service job for like a couple of years just to see how shitty it is.
1: Yeah, this is functionally that. <laughs> yeah. Everyone has to work customer service for the country. The heir, once they're chosen, still has to do, like, circuit and things like that. They still have to serve mm-hmm. as a herald. And so, like, they have to do customer service for a couple of years before they get to be in charge of anything.
0: And the magical horses, are they basically
1: without reproach? Can they have, like,
0: incorrect opinions? Or is this just, like, a magic hand wave thing?
1: Generally speaking... They have made a mistake exactly once, which we will get into in one of the later trilogies. Dope. They f***ed up exactly once, and then they made sure not to f*** up that badly ever again. (laughs) They were very invested in not doing that, yeah. Sounds ominous. Can't wait. So, Heralds of Valdemar focuses on Talia's training as a herald. It is, again, what we might now recognize as the magic school type plot. I have a theory that J.K. Rowling cribbed pretty heavily from Heralds of Valdemar and just didn't tell anyone because a lot of the beats are the same year after year education, Talia trains as a herald, she meets other heralds, she gets like a grounding in what this world is. However, her training is over at the end of Arrows of the Queen, which means Arrows Flight is her on circuit and during her internship, and then Arrows Fall is her serving as the queen's own herald. So we actually get to see our YA protagonist become an adult and do adult things, which is what I like about the way that teenage protagonists in the series are handled. You introduce Valdemar, you introduce the Heralds, you introduce the Companions. What also gets introduced in the background of it, because Talia is from this particular border, you find out about the country to the south of Valdemar, which is called Kars. Kars is a theocracy ruled by the church of a god called Vicandus, who there's a pretty good chance this god exists by this point in the, in the Heralds of Valdemar. People are like, that's probably a dude that exists. But the country is ruled by the leader of the of Vacandus's church called the Son of the Sun. Which kind of son? Which kind of son of the sun? Both. S-O-N of the S-U-N. Okay, thank you. Yeah, had some fun with that. But Kars becomes a, is a constant tension on the southern border because Valdemar is a very lush country. Kars is a very sparse and hilly country. There's constant raids across the border. It and Valdemar have been at war a couple of times. They're not at war right now, but that could change. So keeping that in mind, we also introduce another country, the country to the east called Hardorn, which is an ally of Valdemar. And a lot of the central tension of the trilogies overall is the fact that the direct heir to the queen, uh, Princess Elspeth, in the first book, she has not been chosen by a companion and it's starting to get too late for that because companions usually choose people. There have been exceptions, but companions usually choose like young teenagers. There have been instances where companions will choose adults or even like middle-aged people, but for the most part, they choose people who are young enough that they can go to school and train and become heralds. It's kind of interesting when the topic of like, can you turn down being a herald is addressed because... Yes, theoretically. I mean, they're not going to force you to become a herald, but also the horses are psychic. (laughs) They don't choose people who would say no to becoming a herald. Does the horse just harass you until you answer the call to action? No, the horse only shows up if you're the kind of person who would say yes to the call to action. Huh, that's an interesting tautology. The horses are psychic. They know what's in your heart. They are your conscience. They will choose you if you're that kind of person. And if you're not, the horse never shows up. There's an element of destiny and fate there as the companions as agents of fate that we'll get delved into later in the series. But well, Sure, but does
0: anyone ever have to, like, overcome an initial, like, fear even though they are the right kind
1: of person? Well, there's usually sometimes a resistance to... Right. They don't think they're good enough to be a herald. Yeah. Or there was specifically one herald who shows up in this trilogy named Skiff. And the thing with Skiff is that he's a thief. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He got chosen when he stole a horse and that horse turned out to be a companion. Oopsie (laughs) do. Oopsie doopsie. He gets his own book later on, but he was initially quite resistant to the idea because he didn't buy into the idea of heralds. But once, you know, somebody was like, this is what being a herald actually is. He's like, Oh, I want to do that. The tension over the course of the trilogy is first, will Elspeth get chosen? And then like Talia, who is like, she's from fantasy Mormonism. So like she's used to like raising other kids. She helps basically sort this kid's shit out. And it turns out that her nanny was screwing with her head to the point where she wouldn't get chosen. Oh, gross. Yeah. And then that nanny flees the country into Hardorn. But we don't know that yet. And then as Elspeth grows up, there is a proposition from Hardorn that like, hey, you've got a daughter of marriageable age, I've got a son of marriageable age, do you want to do like a marriage of alliance thing like that? And then in Arrow's Fall, Talia goes to check out Hardorn ahead of the arrival of Princess Elspeth and things go to shit very quickly. The Prince Ankar kills his father, takes over the throne, and turns out to be a really bad guy and wages war on Valdemar. And that war will continue for several other trilogies. Oh, dear. One thing that's also discussed in this particular trilogy is that in Valdemar, there is no magic. It is understood that magic was a thing that used to exist, has since disappeared with the death of Vanyel, the last herald mage, and now all the heralds have is basically telepathic gifts. They're referred to as mind gifts or mind magic. There are heralds that are telepaths. Most of them have some level of telepathy to communicate with their companions. There are heralds with telekinesis. There are heralds with like limited clairvoyance. There are heralds who are fire starters, which will become very relevant in a later book. But basically, it's all little tricks like that. Mm-hmm. Talia, by the way, is an empath. She cannot speak to Roland, her companion. They communicate empathically, but there is no exchanges in words between them. Arrow's Flight deals with the fact that, like, she at no point. <laughs> there hadn't been an empath herald in a really long time by the time she showed up, so her training was kind of slipshod, and in Arrow's Flight, those chickens come home to roost. Released kind of around the same time as the Heralds of Aldemar trilogy was a trilogy called Vows in Honor, or what turned out to be a trilogy. The first book was called The Oathbound. And what The Oathbound is, is basically a novel expansion of a series of short stories that Mercedes Lackey wrote for a Marion Zimmer Bradley anthology called Sword and Sorceress. Marion Zimmer Bradley? Yes. Huh. Yeah. So the deal with Sword and Sorceress was that in order to make it into the anthology, your story had to feature a female main character who was either a magic user or a martial artist who used a sword. Okay. Dope. So Mercedes Lackey published a story in this anthology called Sword swarm, which featured both. It featured Kethry, who was a traveling mercenary mage, and it featured Tarma, who was a sword swarm, which is a member of a people called the Shina'in. Mercedes Lackey's from Oklahoma, so the Shina'in, as well as another nation later called the Tiledras, are both based pretty heavily on American indigenous people.
2: Back in the halcyon days of my youth, I was on Neopets a lot. <laughs> And one of my best friends on Neopet said her name was Kethri. So I just want to shout out to Kethri for faking (laughs) being another person like I did. (laughs) Wherever you are.
1: How's it going, Kethri? How's it going? So yeah, Kethri and Tarma meet up. Tarma's on this vengeance quest because her family, basically in the Shinine, her clan was almost entirely wiped out. She's the last survival and she has sworn herself to the deity of the Shinine known as the Star-Eyed Goddess. Part of her swearing herself to the star eyed goddess is that she is now like completely asexual, like physically and psychologically. She's referred to as being as sexless as the sword she carries. And so she meets up with Kethri. They get vengeance for Tarma's people. That's the plot of Swordsworn. And then the rest of the Oathbound is Tarma going back to one of the other remaining clans or taking care of what's left of her clan's stuff and finding out that, you know, her clan can be restarted as long as there is one surviving member of the clan and their descendants to form the core of the clan. And other people from other Shinna in clans will come and join if Tarma makes herself famous enough functionally. The only problem is is that Tarma, again, has sworn a vow of celibacy, and it has no interest in sex whatsoever, so she's not having kids anytime soon. However, Mm. she and Kethri are now blood sisters. Under the laws of the Shinayan, any kids that Kethri has will be Shinayan, will be part of Tarma's clan. Mm. So a subplot along the way is basically, I have to keep Kethri safe because the kids she has are going to be what's left of my clan. Now, this may strike you as a bit homoerotic, and it is, but... Kethry is explicitly heterosexual and Tarma is explicitly asexual. And the reason for this is hilarious. Okay. Which is that the Sword and Sorceress anthology was apparently so swamped with lesbians (laughs) (laughs) that Mercedes Lackey was like, in order for my story to stand out, somebody needs to be straight. (laughs) (laughs) So she just created the token straight. She created the token straight for the Sword and Sorceress anthology. Very nice. In the 80s. Which, you know, there's always been interesting queer fiction if you go looking for it. The only reason that publishers are talking about, like, what they're doing now is, like, at all novel is marketing. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to go looking for the old interesting thing. They want you to buy their shiny new thing. But there is interesting old things if you go look. So you have Oathbound, and then you have a sequel called Oathbreakers, which is basically a much tighter actual novel instead of a series of short stories about Tarma and Kethry's later career and Kethry meeting the guy who would become the, her husband and the father of her children. Basically, the way that they resolve succession dispute in a nation called Rethwellen, which is, turns out to be to the south of Valdemar. I'm pretty sure that Tarma and Catherine were not originally supposed to occupy the same world as the Heralds, as Valdemar, and then they were folded together later because Oathbreakers, like, basically serves as, like, the continuity glue there. They go to the Valdemar border, they meet a Herald, they meet a companion. Interestingly, Tarma takes one look at a companion and goes, Oh, that's a spirit in service of a god. I know what that is. And everyone else is like, Wait, what? And then that does not get addressed for several more books. Really? (laughs) She's like, yeah, that's a spirit. I know what that is. I have those too. They're like my teachers that teach me, you know, how to do sword shit. I'm like, no, that's a horse. And everyone else is like, no, that's a magic horse. It quacks like a horse. (laughs) But the the interesting thing is is it's established in Heralds of Valdemar that there's no magic. But Tarma and Kethria are roughly contemporary with the Hell of Valdemar trilogy They take place about 50 years earlier. 50 years is not enough for it to be like, oh, there's no magic around anymore. It's, it's an ancient thing that's no longer here, which creates an interesting, I'm not sure if it's a continuity problem or a continuity challenge that does get addressed later. But
0: I mean, if everybody can just sort of quietly ignore the fact that like in the span of 17 years, Jedi were everywhere in the galaxy fighting a war in a very prominent space to, I don't know, there's some old wizards
1: and they're fake. I feel like people can give Valdemar a pass here. Yeah, but Mercedes Lackey couldn't. That do not be how she do. Oh, boy. So you get Oathbreakers, Succession Dispute and is resolved. And then we have Oathblood, which is just basically another collection of short stories and novellas featuring Tarma and Catherine at various points in their career. So then after Vows and Honor, you get another trilogy called The Last Herald Mage, which goes backwards in time. Mm -hmm. This is the story of that guy Vanyel I mentioned earlier, the last herald mage. The books are Magic's Pawn, Magic's Promise, and Magic's Price. So this is in an era where magic is widely used and herald mages are basically an elite within an elite. They are heralds who have the mage gift. So you have Vanyel who, through a series of extremely hyperbolically tragic events, gets his mage gift awakened and is chosen by the companion Ifandes. And then, you know, it's just basically the trilogy is the course of his career, ending with his final sacrifice in Magic Price and the disappearance of magic from Valdemar. Vanyal is notable for being basically one of the first heroic gay male characters in fantasy fiction. You saw gay men earlier in things like Dune, but they were usually villains, portrayed as pedophiles, things like that. Vanyal was just like an unmitigated, he's a good guy, he's a hero, which was a big deal in f-ing 1990. Nice. So it's notable for that. It's also notable for introducing that other indigenous-inspired clan called the dress, who are the Shinnon forswear all magic. They don't use magic. They don't like it. The dress are, on the other hand, basically the magic caretakers of the really fucked up wilderness around Valdemar, which is stated several times to have been caused by something called the Mage Wars. dress established something called a veil. They settle down, they start cleaning up the magic radiation that's all over the fucking place. Once everything's in order, they pick up, they move to somewhere else, and they do it all over again. This is a vow that they've made to the star-eyed goddess. This is their work. This is what they do. Vanyel goes to train with the dress for a little while. We learn things about them while he's there. So at the end of Magic's Prize, magic is gone from Valdemar. And there's some interesting things going on, where it seems that, like, the last thing that Vanyel did was possibly cast some kind of spell to make people in Valdemar forget magic. Oh, no. One of those? (laughs) One of those. And also, Vaniel's a ghost now. We'll come back to that. Sure, why not? Okay. After magic's price, we get a book called By the Sword. So... By the Sword is about Kethry's granddaughter, Carowin, who becomes a mercenary as well. She is not raised by the Shinayan because Carowyn's mother, one of Kethry's daughters, did not go to live with the Shinayan. She instead married some f***o in Jakatha, which is another country to the south of Valdemar, and just did her best to ignore her grandmother's extremely badass backstory. But Carowin goes to train with Kethry and Tarma, who are now like in their 80s and still awesome. Running off to ignore your grandma's
0: heritage really just reminds me of that far side of Barnum and Bailey's children
1: running off to join the city. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. So Carowind's mother runs off to join the city and then Carowyn goes back to the circus. But it's the course of Carowin's career. One of the things established there is that Carowin when she's training with Tarma and Kethry, also trains alongside Prince Darenthallus of Rethwellen who is like the son or grandson of the king that Tarma and Kethry put on the throne in Rethwellen. Hmm. And Rethwellen now owes a debt of gratitude to Valdemar but Valdemar has kind of forgotten this. Carowin trains, she goes off to have her mercenary career. Through a series of trials, she ends up captain of her own mercenary company, and then she gets hired by the nation of Valdemar to sort of participate in the war against Hardorn. So the latter half of the book is basically the campaign in Hardorn, and an interesting thing is that when Carowin, when she takes her company north to Valdemar, and the moment she crosses the border, all of the mages in her company start being like, something's watching me, I'm losing my fucking mind. So all the mages have to leave. They stay south of the border. They do not participate. But during this, Prince Derenthalas also ends up getting involved because of that debt, basically, that uh, Rethwellen owes to Valdemar. So Prince Derenthalas also joins the fight. During the final battle, a number of interesting things happen. Number one, Darren and Carowin both get chosen by companions. All right. Thing number two, Derenthalas meets the Queen of Valdemar. And there's this thing that's introduced earlier called a life bond which is basically, it's a soulmate. It's occasionally someone will meet somebody and their fates are intertwined and therefore they fall in love. It's explored later in some of the other books that having a a life bond actually kind of sucks because you can't leave each other. Oh, sure. So if you're making each other miserable, you have to get your shit together because you can't leave. Yikes. Derenthalus and then the queen, Saline fall in love. They're life bonded. And Derenthalus can actually be Prince Consort because he's a herald. He's been chosen. Thirdly, the companions that choose, Darren and Carolyn. Okay, so in the last Herald Mage, Vaniel's aunt was named Savile. Okay. He had a fellow Herald named Jason. Okay. The companions that choose, Darren and Carolyn. Darren mm-hmm. is chosen by a companion named Jason. Okay. And Carolyn is chosen by a companion named Sable. Why? Because <laughs> something's about to happen. Okay. This will get explored later, trust me, but this is something that's introduced. Uh, by the end of it, The war with Hardorn is not over, but a significant blow has been dealt to Hardorn. And Carowyn is now a herald captain, and Prince Derenthalus is now the prince consort, and there is now a military alliance between Rethwell and Valdemar. Also, Carowyn just heard from Tarma that, like, oh, hey, companions are, like, spirits. But every time she tries to call a companion a spirit while a companion is around, she can't get the word out. (laughs) What? The word Spirit? Yeah, she's can't get the word "spirit" out. She's talking to Harold about companions. She says, "Oh yeah, they're s- special." She huh. can't get the word out. Something's going on. What if
0: she wanted to say that someone has a spirited personality?
1: That's fine. She just can't call a companion a spirit for some reason. It's like there's something in her brain that's stopping her. That's a very specific word. That's a very specific word. But anyway, so we finish up by the sword, and then we get into another trilogy called the Mage Winds. So the war with Hardorn is still ongoing, and we go to Princess Elspeth, who is now in her early 20s. She has a companion whose name is Gwenna. Gwenna is remarkable because in terms of companions, the original bunch of companions that showed up in Valdemar back when King Valdemar was doing his thing, they all came out of this grove in the middle of the palace grounds. Those companions were referred to as Groveborn. However, once, like, there were enough heralds and enough companions, the companions just started, like, having babies. So most companions are just birthed by other companions. However, there is one groveborn, and that is always the queen's own companion, or the monarch's own companion. Okay. Who is functionally immortal. That companion does not age, and that companion is always a stallion. That companion can be killed, but upon being killed will always be replaced immediately by another groveborn stallion.
0: The fuck? Like, what, one just manifests?
2: Like it will come out of the vacuum right where the other horse died? One just appears out of the grove.
0: Like like the horse has another oh. guy. The okay. horse has another life. The horse has another guy. <laughs> you kill the horse. The horse's next life just pops up.
1: Talia's companion is named Roland. In the last Herald Mage, the king's own companion is named Taver. So it's not the same guy every time, but we'll get into that. But the interesting thing about Elspeth's companion, Gwenna, Gwenna is also groveborn. Which, considering that the companions are agents of fate, is an indicator of something. I'm just, sorry,
0: I'm just stuck on this idea of a guy's like magic horse getting killed, and then it's like in a video game where the horse just loads behind you. <laughs> he just keeps turning around and there's another
1: horse. Yeah, well, most of the time, if the queen's own companion or the monarch's own companion is killed, that also means that the monarch's own has been killed. If a herald's companion dies, it's like when your dragon dies in Pern. Things suck for you. If you don't die, you might try to kill yourself, and if you don't try to kill yourself, your life sucks. The interesting thing is that when Talia was chosen, so Roland's previous herald was Talamir. Talamir Roland was actually his second companion. Previous companion was Taver. Taver died, Talamir was immediately chosen by Roland, even though he didn't want to live, and then Talamir eventually died, and Talia was chosen by Roland. But yeah, basically, the horses have another guy, or at least they have another companion waiting to tag in. So Elspeth with her groveborn companion, Gwenna, finds out that she has the mage gift. Which is not that surprising when you find out that in the last Herald Mage, is because in Magic's Price, we find out, or I think it's Magic's Promise, actually, we find out that the current king is sterile, and the king's lover really wants a child. So Vanyel basically is a sperm donor for her. All right. So Vanyel's mage gift is now in the royal line. So Elspeth is a descendant of Vanyel. She has the mage gift as well. She goes off to the Thai address to train to be a mage. And this is where you get into a lot of the really nitty-gritty of how magic works in this universe, or at least how the Thai dress use magic, which is that you have systems of ley lines which sort of gather all the ambient magical energy given off by living things. The ley lines occasionally cross and mix into lakes called nodes. The different ranks of mage are like apprentices and journeymen can like uh, call magic energy from themselves. Masters can pull from ley lines, but only an adept mage can pull from a node. So Elspeth is an adept level mage. She can do some wild shit once she get trained. Mm-hmm. Her teacher among the Tile is a guy named Darkwind. She also uh, meets Darkwind's teachers, which are a pair of griffins. Oh, oh, those guys are here now. Those guys are here now. Yes. Traven and Hydona are the two griffins. They are teachers of dark winds and they also participate in elspeth's teaching but we sort of learn a bit about griffins we learn about these griffins which is that they are the advance guard of a larger population of they just refer to as their people coming to resettle having after having fled the area thousands of years ago so we meet the griffins we meet another magic teacher firesong who is another descendant of Vanyel, and also a a tremendous pretty boy completely insufferable keeps eating shit it's great it's fun by the end of the mage winds, they go to Hardorn, they finally take out Ankar, they defeat whatever what Ankar was doing, which is basically performing a lot of magic that was causing physical harm to the land around him. It was sort of a Fisher King situation. Okay. He was on the throne, he was draining the land of all of its magical energy, which was basically draining it of life. They managed to stop that. But near the tail ends of Winds of Fury, there's a lot of what's called mage storms happening in Hardorn, which is just basically when a mage f around too much with really powerful magic, you can f*** up your environment. Okay. After that, we get the end of the war with Hardorn, and then we get to the Mage Wars, which is a massive prequel. The Mage Wars and the Mage Storms were actually inter with each other, but I'll cover the Mage Wars first. The Mage Wars is the Black Griffin, the White Griffin, and the Silver Griffin, which is the one that Annie has right. read. That takes place 2,000 years before any other Valdemar what? book we've talked about so far. Are you shitting me? I'm not shitting you. Jesus Christ! Yeah. So this is where we find out about all those magical wars that caused all that f- up, like, environment that the Tileadris are constantly taking care of. We have, The actual mage wars are over by the end of the Black Griffin, and the White Griffin and the Silver Griffin is just covering, like, what the characters do after the war. But the Black Griffin covers a war between Eartho, the Mage of Silence, who's the good guy wizard, and a dark wizard named Ma'ar, who's Wizard Hitler. The comparison is not subtle. He is wizard Hitler. Over the course of the war, you have the main character is actually named and Rashke, who is the black griffin. He's a griffin. The griffins were created by Ertho. Scandranon considers himself the finest of the griffins. He may be correct. He may not. I seem to recall he's a huge asshole. He's a huge asshole. He's great. He is terrific. And it also involves a people who live around Ertho's tower called the Kaledain, who are basically the root people of both the Tiledras and the Shinnayan. They were once one huh. people, they split into two after the Mage Wars.
0: I also seem to remember that the black griffin is actually a white griffin. He dyes his feathers because he's Howell Jenkins like that.
1: Yes. Well, he was originally some kind of color. It's not clear what color he was, but he dyed himself black because he was, ah, in, that's right. he was in a war. And then at the end of the black griffin, he gets caught in a space between magical gates for a little while, which right. bleaches his feathers white. Holy shit. Right. But the Black Griffin is the course of the end of the Mage Wars, basically. The Mage Wars are already raging by the time the book starts. This chronicles the end of them, which ends with both Eartho's tower and Ma'ar's tower exploding at the same time. When Eartho's tower explodes, it creates the plains that the Shinai live on, which is a great big circular basin that once you look at it, knowing that there used to be an exploding tower there, you're like, oh, that's a f***ing crater. Huh. And then there's another perfectly circular lake very far north in Valdemar that once you look at that, you go, oh, that's a f***ing crater. But this causes a series of mage storms that completely f*** up the landscape, cause all sorts of bad things. It's basically like a nuclear bomb went off. It's basically fallout out there for a while. The White Griffin and the Silver Griffin cover what happens when all the refugees from Earth's tower go and found their own city on the coast, called White Griffin. It's like a jungle area or something, and it's
0: built on a whole bunch of old ruins, I think?
1: It's built on some white bluffs. There are some ruins around there, but the city itself is just built on the bluffs. But okay, White Griffin and the Silver Griffin, basically. The White Griffin chronicles the relationship they form with another nation nearby, and then the Silver Griffin is just basically diving into some of the really f***ed up things that live out in the world now that this magical nuclear bomb went off. Yeah, because like the silver
0: griffin isn't actually like a griffin itself. It's like an organization or something that I think the the black griffin's daughter or kid, like his griffin baby and like his mage best friend's daughter are part of this core or something.
1: Yeah. Skandernan's best friend is actually not a mage. He's something called a... He's like a therapist or something, basically. He's a therapist. Yeah. He's a Kestrachern which is a thing that the Kaledion have, which is basically a magic therapist. He's an empath, he's a healer, he is very necessary in a war camp, let's put it that way. But yeah, his name's Amber Drake. Amber Drake has a daughter, and Skandernon has two sons, one of whom joins the Silver Griffins, which is like the military-slash-police in White Griffin, the city. Right. Fast forward back to 2,000 years from now, back in our original timeline, after the Mage wins, those mage storms that Ankar set off, they're not going away. And so we have the Mage Storms Trilogy, which is Storm Warning, so- or Storm Rising, and Storm Breaking. And this is 2,000 years later with the same storms? No, these, these are the storms coming back. Huh. Basically, okay. <laughs> basically the shockwave from those two towers exploding circled the Earth, and now they're coming back. <laughs> oh.
0: Oh, no. Yes. So, th- yeah, no, so that really does make sense to read this in uh, publication order, then. <laughs>
1: Yes, it does. It's very important for you to have a lot of information from the Mage Wars before you read the Mage Storms. And the Mage Storms is kind of interesting, because this is the first Valdemar series where, like, the antagonist isn't a guy or even necessarily a country. The antagonist is a natural disaster. There's some stuff going on with, like, the Eastern Empire that Baron Valdemar fled from all those years ago, sort of coming back, but they don't get to do much before the Mage Storms hit, because every bit of their technology is based on magic. Valdemar, on the other hand, is not hit as hard because they haven't been using magic for the last 500 years. It only just started again.
0: Okay, so these are like man v. nature yes. stories then in this one. Like like disaster movie yeah, shit.
1: Yeah, and when you find out that these books came out in the mid-90s, some things start to click into place. Ah, This was after the end of the Cold War. This was the period that everyone was referring to as the end of history, which turned out to be hilariously wrong. But it was sort of the impression that, like, foreign policy worldwide scales, nothing is going to happen again. And then you start getting things like climate change and holes in the ozone layer and all sorts of environmental disasters. Mm. So the Mage Storms is kind of a reflection of that.
0: Oh, and it is even kind of man-made, isn't it?
1: Yep. Yeah. Hmm. So the Mage Storms brings back a whole bunch of other characters is basically the who's who of the previous books. And it also introduces a couple of new concepts, one of whom is that, you know the country to the south of Valdemar Karst, the one that they've been intermittently at war with? Right. Well, you know how I said Vikandas kind of probably exists?
0: Yeah. The god? The god? That's like the theocracy thing from that country
1: the sun god who's in charge of the theocracy well he definitely exists and we find out okay because at the crowning of the new son of the sun Wakanda's personally shows up vaporizes the entirety of his existing clergy except for one acolyte a woman named solaris huh? takes the crown off of his head and puts it on solaris's head and crowns her the new son of the sun okay that's an escalation Yep. so the major religious reform in the mage storm because Vakandas knows that the mage storms are coming and that his people need to get their shit together. <laughs> ah. Hmm. 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 That's some direct divine intervention. Yeah. Yep. this is also where we find out like a direct confirmation that companions are reincarnated heralds. That's why Jason and Sable showed up right before the mage wins hmm We find out that Vicandus actually has his own equivalent of the companions, which are called fire cats, which are the reincarnated souls of previous sons of the sun, or at least the ones that didn't suck. So the horses
0: down there are cats, and they're reincarnated
1: people? They're reincarnated popes.
0: Okay. Yeah. So does that tie into why some horses were named after people's
1: parents? Yes. Okay. Jason and Sable were both heralds. Then they were reincarnated as companions. Right. And then when they die as companions, there's a chance they could be reincarnated again, either as companions or heralds. Okay. Most, if not all, of the current companions, except for the Groveborn companions, are reincarnated heralds, or reincarnated companions, or both. Okay. They're kind of on a merry-go-round until they decide to get off. <laughs> Yeah. Did they retain like previous life memories? Or they do when they're companions. They don't when they're heralds. Oh, huh. Okay. It would make things complicated if they remembered when they were heralds, but they remember when they're companions. All right. Yeah. Mage Storms has that. It has direct intervention from both the Star-Eyed Goddess and Vikandis. Introduces a guy named Carol, who's like an acolyte of Vikandis, who is basically the instrument by which a lot of this is happening. His job is basically to be in important places and be the point of view character while the shit goes down. Oh, yeah, you'll get that. It is a great big event trilogy in which like all of your favorite characters from everything are getting involved. This is the crossover event. Yes, there's the collapse of the Eastern Empire because all of their magic stuff stops working, so they stop being a threat very quickly. And then you also have the return of the Kaletta. And remember those Griffins from the Mage Winds, Trayvan and Hydona? They were an advance guard from White Griffin. Really? They're an advance guard from the city of White Griffin. So a bunch back? of the Kaletta and from White Griffin come back. Wait, so their city survived two thousand years? They're still there two thousand years later. They're still there. They're still there. Well, hot shit. Griffins are back, everybody.
2: Griffins.
1: The Griffins are back, everybody. Yeah, a lot of non-human characters. Dope. Great big conclusion to the Mage Storms. A lot of character like plot lines being wrapped up. A lot of things that had been established as threats being tidied away. A very strong alliance between Kars and Valdemar now. A whole bunch of real like big world rocking shit happening. And that's the Mage Storms. It's sort of like the event trilogy. And you would think that's the end of the series. But Mercedes it was like, I'm going to keep going. So was that a point where she like thought that was going to
0: be where she stopped and then just picked it up again later? Kind of like how El Frank Baum sort of kept putting away and tidying up Oz and then pulling it back out again?
1: You know, I think so, except for the fact that Darian's Tale, which is the next trilogy, came out basically immediately afterwards.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: But Darian's Tale is also a much smaller story, and it also Larry Dixon is a co-writer on it. Huh. Okay. So definitely some kind of shift. Yeah, it's possible Larry Dixon well also had an idea that he wanted to do. But between Mage Storms and Darian's Tale, we have an interesting thing happen. Okay. Which is a book called Sword of Ice and Other Tales of Valdemar. And what this is, is a revival of in the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s, but not so much these days, there used to be a thing with a lot of long running fantasy series called the Friends of Anthology, which is just basically if you as a fantasy writer have this, you know, big, cool world that you've written, Mm -hmm. you will sometimes invite other writers to write short stories and (sighs) combine them into an anthology set in your world.
0: Oh, dope. You just invite all your friends to write like quasi canonical fanfic for you.
1: Yes, exactly. So like, Mercedes Lackey, one of the things she got her start in was the Friends of Darkover anthology by Marion Zimmer Bradley. So the first Friends of Valdemar anthology is Swords of Ice and Other Tales of Valdemar. Huh. And that's just a whole bunch of people running fun, semi-canonical short stories in Valdemar. And from then on out, you see a lot more anthologies that just like every other book release is an anthology. Okay. It's kind of cool. Okay. So
0: definitely like some kind of like, mechanical shift in at least what sort of her writing process was.
1: And also you start to see after Mage Storms, I think she kind of burned out on like big important like things. I mean, I would. So a lot of the stuff you see in Valdemar from here on out is like political intrigue and slice of life stuff. Gotcha. So you have Darian's tale, which is sort of returning to the YA sort of angle on these characters. You get a kid called Darian who after the Mage Storms is orphaned. And he gets adopted by a Tyledrus clan. The books are called Owlflight, Owlsight, and Owlnight. And that's because he takes a Tyledrus bond bird, which are these hyper-intelligent, but not like companion-level intelligent, specially bred magical birds that the Tyledrus keep. And Darian takes an eagle owl named Quarry. And so the Owlflight, Owlsight, and Owllight, the owl is Quarry. An eagle owl? Yes. What does that mean? It's a species of owl that hunts by daylight or by nighttime and is gigantic. It's a big owl.
0: Okay, so it's a big owl, but it's not like an eagle and an owl had a baby of
1: some sort. No, no, that's an actual species of owl is an eagle owl. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You can look them up. They're big. The Bond bird version is even bigger. (laughs) It's mentioned a couple of times that when Quarry is perched on Darian's arm, he has trouble holding his arm up. (laughs) This is a big f***ing bird but Darian's tale is just sort of him coming into his own coming of age within the Tileadris clan him going in search of his parents and the work that the Tileadris clan is doing with regards to not just cleaning up the magical fallout from the mage storms but also resolving a lot of the like there's a lot of smaller nations and tribal nations to the north of Valdemar that got really f***ed up by the mage storms and after the mage storms they start coming south so it's like a resolution of like we've got all these refugees we can't turn them away how do we resolve the conflict? Conflicts that are arising because of this. And then after Darian's tale we get a standalone novel called Brightly Burning, which is one of my favorites. It takes place a few hundred years I believe about 150 years after Vanyel dies after the last Herald Mage. and it is about a herald named Lavin Firestorm. Firestorm is not his actual last name. Firestorm is the last name that he gained by virtue of his deeds because Lavin Firestorm is a fire starter. huh? He's a fire starter with an incredibly powerful gift, so powerful that he can't control it. His companion has to control it for him. Oh, huh. Okay. The interesting thing about his companion, Kalira, Kalira is not just his companion. Kalira is his life bonded. What? Yeah. Sorry, sorry, what? He's married to the horse? He is spiritually married to the horse. They don't have a sex life. He's spiritually married to the horse? If it's not a sexual thing, it's a purely romantic thing. But like, in order for him to function as a person, she has to be incredibly tightly bonded to him to keep his fire starting gift under control.
0: But it is a romantic thing. He is romantically in love with the horse.
1: He loves her. He never has a girlfriend. He loves the horse. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And unfortunately, Brightly Burning is a tragedy because Valdemar is at war with Cars. And Lavin gets sent to the southern border, where he uses his gift to wreck shop, and he's doing incredibly well, except for the fact that the armies of Kars have figured out that his weak point, as is the weak point of every herald, is the companion. So as Lavin is working to stop this major advance from the Karsite army into Valdemar and taking out things with, you know, his fire-starting powers, Kalira gets shot! Hmm. Kalira gets shot, and Lavin loses control of his gift and basically nukes the valley. Oh dear. (laughs) He nukes the valley to the point that, like, when that location is revisited in later books, nothing grows there still. Yowza! Yeah, that's the story of Lavin Firestorm that's brightly burning. Okay. Yeah, so that's, it's... Don't uh, date robots. Don't date robots. If your guy has an incredibly volatile firestorm gift, maybe don't put him in a situation where he might be unduly distressed.
0: Yeah, that, mm, mm Not sure about those series of decisions. Yep.
1: The next book after that is Take a Thief, which is about Skiff, that thief I mentioned earlier, the one who got chosen because he stole a horse and the horse turned out to be a companion. Oh, yeah, that guy. (laughs) Right. So it's basically his life story from being like a urchin working for the Artful Dodger all the way up to becoming a herald. Okay. Take a Thief also spends a lot of time on a guy named Alberic, who has been introduced in previous books as the weapons master of the Herald Collegium. He teaches everyone Mm -hmm. how to fight. He is from Kars. He was chosen by a companion named Kantor, who is the ballsiest companion in the world because he went into Kars while they were not friendly with each other and stole a guy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure you can describe a
0: horse as ballsy to me and not have me picture specific things. That's
1: fine. But yeah. Still, sounds like a badass magic horse. Cantor is a badass. He's built like a war horse. Alberic is a badass. And Alberic is introduced in Take a Thief as not only being the weapons master, but also being the herald spy. The herald spy. He's the head of the intelligence department for the queen in Valdemar. He sounds cool. He's cool. And then the next duology is Exiles, which is about Alberic. And it's, this is Exiles Honor and Exiles Valor. Exiles Honor sort of deals with him being chosen by Cantor, booking it out of Karse, The political tensions caused by him being in Valdemar and being a herald, him sort of like diving into the herald spy role, him becoming weapons master, all of that. And then it ends with the death of the previous king and the crowning of Selene, who is the queen at the start of the uh, Heralds Valdemar trilogy. Okay. It also chronicles, like, the death of Taver, Roland choosing Talamir, things like that. And then the next book is Exile's Valor, which covers Selene's disastrous marriage that resulted in the birth of Elspeth, which is basically there's this prince from Rethwellen who turns out to be an older brother of Darren, who, who later on becomes her soulmate. But there's this prince who, like, woos her, they get married, they have a kid. This prince is not chosen by a companion because he's a dickhead. But he wants to be king. He wants to be king so bad that he plots to have Selene assassinated. Mmm. And then he gets promptly murked by Alberic during a big conflict that has to be hushed up because otherwise things with Rathwell could get very bad. Uh,
0: Sounds a skosh messy. Yeah.
1: Yes. So that's the exiles duology and that, that's sort of Alberic's deal. And then we have a couple of more anthologies, Sun and Glory and Crossroads. Sun and Glory features the story of after Solaris is crowned, Talia and Alberic go to Kars, basically perform the diplomatic necessities in order to formally and officially like end the hostilities between the two countries. I don't remember much of what's in crossroads but i remember liking the stories but and then for a while there after exiles there's a period of like six years where like the anthologies are the only thing coming out and then in 2008 mercedes lackey goes back to writing novels for valdemar with the collegium chronicles
0: Hmm. was she doing anything else in the meantime like other other novels or anything
1: mercedes lackey can't not write a book (laughs) yeah in addition to the valdemar books she writes a lot of other stuff yeah i was gonna say With the Collegium Chronicles, you get the story of, this is another taking back to the the YA angle, this time with a young herald named Mags, who is chosen at the start of Foundation. And the Foundation also basically chronicles the start of the herald's collegium. In Vanyel's day, it was just you apprenticed to another herald, and they would teach you everything you needed to know about being a herald. Right. And then when Mags is chosen, a couple hundred years later, they're like, we should have a formalized school for this. The apprenticeship thing is not (laughs) working. We don't have enough heralds, and a lot of people are being chosen right now.
0: There's too many magic horses running around.
1: By the way, if in Valdemar, if a lot of kids are being chosen all of a sudden, you know something bad's about to happen. The, the companions are agents of fate.
0: <laughs> yeah, that seems like the kind of thing that you just kind of like, you know, lick your finger, put
1: it up, squint your eyes, storm's coming. Bad things are about to happen. We have Mags and his books, the Collegium Chronicles are five books long, Foundation, Intrigues, Changes, Redoubt, and Bastion. And that basically covers the years from him being chosen into him becoming a full-fledged herald. And it is mostly just political intrigue stuff. And and not a lot of world-ending stuff, but it, it is him like getting mentored by the existing Herald spy, who at this time is also the King's Own. One interesting thing about the Collegium Chronicles, though, it takes place between the Last Herald Mage and the Exiles duology. So, in the Last Herald Mage, the King's Own companion is named Taver. In the Exiles duology, Talamir's first companion is named Taver. Then Taver is killed, and Roland takes the role. Okay. In the Collegium Chronicles, the King's Own companion is named. Rolling. Okay. Basically, this seems to be that there are only two monarch's own companions. There are two Groveborn companions, and they tap in and out. <laughs> huh. One dies, the other one taps in. That one dies, the other one taps in. That appears to be the case.
0: Huh. I mean, I guess that means that that's a lot of job security, but... It seems like that would be a bad idea in case both of them get busy. Does there need to be a third horse?
1: <laughs> yeah, it seems to be the case that when one croweborn companion is active, the other one is waiting in the wings. And by the wings, I mean the astral plane, I guess. Right. So yeah, End of Bastion. Mags is now a fully-fledged herald. We get a bunch more anthologies released intermediately with these. You get Moving Targets, Changing the World, Finding the Way, and Under the Veil. Under the Veil is notable for containing that really long Larry Dixon essay I mentioned, the one where he basically explains, okay, here's the deal with magic. None of our characters will ever have the academic understanding to, like, get most of this, but here's how it all works. To the point where he was mm-hmm. describing the explosion of Ertho's Tower and Maar's tower is like that's not strictly speaking an explosion, that's a disjunction wave. A disjunction? A disjunction wave. Disjunction wave. As the wave expanded from both towers, it broke apart any spell work it came across, any magical work that it came across. This, this included oh. sources of magic underground just got vaporized, which caused the ground to depress <laughs> in an expanding wave. Oh, hmm. He was explaining that in tremendous detail, which... Kind of a really severe, like, EMP, huh? It f***ed up the world real bad. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Then we get to the next trilogy, which is the Herald Spy, which is Mags being an adult. And Mag's doing the Herald spy stuff, which is, again, a lot of political intrigue. So Closer to Home is notable for being sort of a sarcastic take on Romeo and Juliet. Okay, Closer to the Heart and Closer to the Chest, other political intrigue stories. And then you get to a bunch of other anthologies, No True Way, Crucible Tempest, and Pathways. And then you get your first sort of Valdemar volume, not written by Mercedes Lackey, which is The Demon's Den and Other Tales of Valdemar by Tanya Huff. Tanya Huff had written a bunch of short stories featuring the same characters in a bunch of previous anthologies, so she just basically got permission to collect all of her stories from those anthologies into a single volume, and that's The Demon's Den. Okay. And then you get the next trilogy, which is Family Spies. Mercedes Lackey was really into the espionage thing for a while and also really liked Mags. So Family Spies is about Mags and his children. Okay. And I need you to fully appreciate these titles, which are The Hills Have Spies, (laughs) I Spy, Uh Uh-huh. And Spy Spy Again. Spy Spy Again. Yep. I Spy is most notable for this book came out in 2016. It features a character named Dudley Remp. Dudley Remp? Who is noted for having extraordinarily small hands and is a rich kid asshole. Hmm. Yep. She's not subtle. (laughs) She's not a subtle writer. (laughs) And then you got a couple more anthologies, choices, seasons, and passages. And then you get to the trilogy that is currently being written, which is The Founding of Valdemar. Mercedes Lackey is, at time of writing, 72 years old. It is possible she's aware that if she doesn't, like, finish Valdemar soon, she may not get the chance to. So I feel like The Founding of Valdemar is sort of a wrap-up for the whole thing. The two books, Beyond is currently out, and one that's coming out this winter is Into the West. And this is basically the... Non-mythologized, non-history book version of how Valdemar was fan of the story of Baron Valdemar. Oh, so with like the Baron and stuff. With Baron Valdemar, yes. Okay. And it's interesting because like in Family Spies in particular, you could see Mercedes Lackey getting annoyed with the political state Mm -hmm. of things in America. Founding of Valdemar, Beyond in particular is just her being like, "fuck this. So Beyond is basically, you look at the Eastern Empire, you look what Baron Valdemar is living in, and you're like, oh, that's America. That's modern America that he's living in. And this is what he decides he's just going to excise himself from and leave forever. Mm -hmm. It is a culture of cruelty. It is a culture of power over everything else. It is awful. It is just an awful, awful place to live. So you're like, oh, yeah, I understand why you would take all of your people and just leave. So beyond is very good. Into the West is not out yet, but it is probably going to involve him running into the Tiledras because as revealed in Under the Veil, the first Tiledras Veil, Kahala, is the site where the capital of Valdemar is now. Huh. Okay. Uh, and then you get another couple of anthologies. Boundaries came out last year and Shenanigans is coming out this year. And that's the Heralds of Valdemar series so far. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's still going. Dope. As to the fact of this episode, I mentioned a lot of non-human characters. I didn't even mention all of them. In addition to the Griffins, in addition to the Companions and the Firecats and all of those, you also have... Other cre- species that were magically created before the Mage Wars, you have the Kyrie, who uh, Tarma and Kethri had a Kyrie companion who is basically a wolf with cat-like features like retractable claws. They're telepathic and they have three sexes. You have the Hertasi, who work with the Tileadress a lot. There's these the little reptilian mom friends, like their entire species has the outlook of a mom friend. Okay. In Darian's Tale, you meet the Diheli, or at least you dive into the Diheli, which are sort of like these hyper-intelligent deer-like species. You get a lot of interesting characters who are not easily played by dudes in costumes. Huh. Okay. Which is why I think if you are going to be adapting... Heralds of Valdemar, which apparently somebody's working on The Last Herald Mage as a TV series, which I did a whole essay on my blog about why I think that's a bad idea. But if you're going to adapt this for movie or TV or what have you, you have to account for a lot of characters who are not just going to be dudes. And you have to do it in a way that's actually convincing because you need the emotional connection with these characters. These characters matter. Their relationships with other characters matter. When you watch Farscape, You've got the regular cast, a lot of whom have a lot of extensive makeup, and then you have characters who are entirely puppets. You have Rigel and you have Pilot. Pilot is this magnificent, gigantic, multi-armed puppet who's parked in the center of the ship. And the thing about Pilot is the other actors, they can move around in his space, they can duck under his arms, they can look at him, they can look him in the eye, they can touch him, and because of that, there's an emotional connection. You care about Pilot because these characters care about Pilot in a way that the actor's cannot do as well if they're just talking to a tennis ball that gets replaced with a CGI thing later. You need that emotional connection. And so therefore, if you're going to do Heralds of Valdemar, you need horse puppets, you need griffin puppets, (laughs) you need firecat puppets, you need Kyrie puppets, you need all the puppets, you need Jim Henson's creature shop to make this work. Another
0: example of that would also be just the work done with the baby Yoda puppet on Mandalorian.
1: I have not watched The Mandalorian, but yeah, probably.
0: In that it is a physical puppet. It is a very well done physical puppet to the point where Werner Herzog was on that. And at some point they were like, yeah, we're thinking about just replacing this with CGI. And he was like, how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) He famously lambasted them for thinking about replacing this physical puppet with CGI because it was an emotional core of that television program was having an actual physical thing to look at and interact with.
1: Yeah. The reason Disney doesn't like puppets, though, is because the puppeteers are union and CGI artists are not. But anyway, yes, any Valdemar adaptation requires Jim Henson's creature shop. That's my thesis for this episode after explaining to you all 56 books of this (laughs) series Mm -hmm. and counting. I would
0: say, though, that you probably shouldn't make puppet horses. That's going to end badly.
1: It would probably have to be the same horse a lot just because it's hard to get actually white horses Mm. and actually white horses with blue eyes are even harder to find. Like the thing they're doing in Sandman where it's like Matthew is mostly just a real raven and then they CGI his beak opening and closing a bit.
0: Right, right. You could CGI a horse's eyes blue.
1: Yes. You just have an extremely well-trained white horse. I'm just thinking about puppets. <laughs> <laughs> Take a moment, everyone, to think about puppets. Puppets are good. Puppets are really good, actually. Yeah.
2: Unless they're evil in a horror movie.
1: Oftentimes there are many evil puppets, yes. That's also fine. They're evil critters. In Valdemar, there are uh, Wersa, which are just basically... Imagine you crossed a snake with a greyhound. Does it have legs, or...? Yes, it has legs. It's awful. It's an awful creature.
0: I mean, a greyhound is already basically just a sack of elbows. Yeah, it has the snake factor.
1: It's made of elbows and everything is poison. Huh. All right. By the way, if you're, if anyone's wondering whether I recommend reading all of these books, probably not. <laughs> no. I mean, if if you have a year to kill in lockdown, go for it. But in like reading through a series this long takes a certain level of either stamina or derangement. I haven't figured out which. So you. Don't recommend these books. Yes, except when I do. Here's what I'll recommend these books for. If you're interested in teenage characters who are actually written by teenagers, i.e. small adults with no sense of, like, proportion or context, you'll like Heralds of Valdemar. If you've ever been annoyed that a character in a movie threw their best knife at the enemy, you'll like Heralds of Valdemar. (laughs) If you've ever watched a fantasy movie and been like, this magic system is wildly inconsistent, I wish someone would explain this. You'll like Heralds of Valdemar. If you're reading a lot of YA right now, but you're kind of frustrated that all the female characters like basically have romance plots and nothing else going on, you might like Heralds of Valdemar. If you like the political intrigue in Game of Thrones, but the way George R. R. Martin writes is kind of gross to you, you'll like Heralds of Valdemar.
0: All right. So I think that wraps us up here, Yeah.
1: I think so, yeah. I've been at this for an hour and a half.
0: Okay. Well, shit, I guess that means it's time for our final facts. <laughs> Mac, what's your final
1: fact?
2: My final fact that I have gleaned from this <laughs> is that the white horses are the dragons of Pern, but horses. <laughs>
0: You're not incorrect.
2: <laughs> That's what I've gotten. Annie, what's your final fact?
0: Don't date It will not end well. Don't do it. Especially not if you have magic powers.
1: (laughs) Kit, what's your final fact? My final fact is every story is better with a griffin. Legit. Every single story. Moby Dick, better with a griffin. (laughs) Sense and sensibility. Better with a griffin. And griffins. Pride and prejudice and griffins. Mmm. Say. <laughs> Diners, drive-ins, dives, and griffins.
2: Oh, shit. Yeah.
0: Ooh! <laughs> Love the triple D&G. <laughs> it's a good show. Guy Fieri and his griffin. <laughs> travel from place to place, never resting. <laughs> All right, folks, I think that's going to wrap it up for us here. Join us next time. It is going to be our Halloween month episode, in which case usually it'd be my pick, but Mac and I are switching because Mac has the very good suggestion that we are going to prove the fact that writer, director, lead actors are always a bad idea. And yes, we did this with Titanic 2, but this one is colon ladies version. <laughs> <laughs> ladies night of the same thing. <laughs> Ladies night.
2: We're going to be talking about a movie that has two different names. And sometimes I read a line that it was the UK version has one name and the American version has another. But then sometimes the American version is the one that they say is the UK version. Anyway, it's either called Immortally Yours or Kiss of the Vampire. It's all on YouTube.
0: (laughs) And we're very excited. This is another movie that Mac and I watched in like college once and became obsessed with afterwards. (laughs) It's a lady who wrote a movie for herself and directed a movie for herself and started a movie for herself about kissing a handsome vampire it's great it's great it's so bad
2: it's the worst i love it
0: it's vampire times again y'all join us next time for that one folks i will fight you comes out every five weeks you can find us wherever podcasts are found created downloaded made don't worry about it just google us we are edited by lucas brown of the math of you podcast if you would like to support us, a like, rating, review, subscribe, wherever you find our podcast is super nice. You can add us on Twitter at CRC Podcast and tell me specifically how much you enjoy our <laughs> podcast and I will yell about it with you. If you want to support us with dollars, patreon.com slash the gem jam is the place for that. For a dollar a month, you can get access to early episodes of I Will Fight You. At our $5 tier behind the scenes, you can get show notes. This one's going to be a little weird because we went show note list, but Mac and I have some ideas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> is it just going to be the picture that I sent you on Discord? <laughs> that and the picture of an owl I found, yes. <laughs> shh,
0: shh, that's for the people that give us money, don't tell. <laughs> that's the secret. <laughs> There's also just tons of other stuff on our Patreon about I Will Fight You and our other shows, Date Me Dammit and Gem Jammer. Date Me Dammit is on a little bit of a hiatus right now, but should be coming back soon ish right
2: yes my adhd just has to focus on editing audio
0: we're working on that one yeah
2: once my adhd focuses though we're gonna have like 20 episodes planned out
0: (laughs) (laughs) they'll be
1: queued out man for ages you gotta ride that urge as far as it'll take you yep i also just put out a novelette which is about 7600 words called the scent of blood it is a gothic werewolf romance it is a whole US dollar. You can find it at most places where ebooks are sold, but the catch all link for it is Books to Read. That's the number two. slash scent of blood. So if you're interested, please check that out. Dope. So join us next time
0: for Kiss of the Vampire slash immortally yours. Until then, I'm Annie. I'm Kit.
2: And I'm Mac.
0: And we have fought you.